Hi, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. In this podcast episode, we're happy to bring you a recording of a panel discussion that took place originally at the Irish Funds Annual Conference on the 31st of May last. It's a panel discussion entitled Leveraging Fintech to Maximise Distribution, and it explores how fintech solutions can help with the challenges involved in international fund distribution. The panel discussion is chaired by Henning Schwabi of Calistone, and you'll hear from Aoife Doyle from Finergo, Ronan Brennan from CSS, Carolina Gotts-Renzi from Clearstream and Len Sutton of JP Morgan. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. The subject of this uh, discussion is le- leveraging fintech to maximize distribution opportunities. Uh, this is um, uh, a discussion which I, I really enjoy, a concept that I really enjoy both uh, personally and professionally. Um, uh, Calistone is the la- world's largest funds transaction network. Uh, we're really involved in, I guess, operating transaction processes. Uh, we're, uh, we are all over the world working with many of you who are in this room. Um, and we are moving everything onto a distrib- distributed ledger technology as well, or our, what we call the distributed market infrastructure to bring blockchain to the industry and to really start to um, bring some of the benefits that we see from that. Um, however, today uh, we have a really great panel um, on my far right, uh, Aoife uh, Doyle from uh, Finergo. Uh, we have Len Sutton from JP Morgan. Uh, we have uh, Ronan Brennan from CSS, and we have uh, Carolina Goshwenzi from Clearstream. Um, and so we have some fintechs, uh, we have some incumbents, uh, and so we have the opportunity, hopefully, to give you some insights, A, into um, the, uh, the the challenges involved in distribution and how technology can help. But then at the end, we do also want to ask our incumbents how how and when they decide to build it, buy it, or rent it when it comes to, uh, to fintechs. Um, what we're going to try and do as well is just to kind of run you through uh, a, almost like a process uh, from uh, from an investor onboarding perspective all the way through to processing to then coping with making sure that we are uh, uh, selling the, the right funds to the right people and then how to cope with data. Um, but before we get into any of that, I'm just going to allow uh, the panelists to introduce themselves. Um, and so I'm going to start on the far right with Aoife. Aoife, please give us two minutes on who you are, what Finogo does, and also please uh, give the audience an idea of what your favourite technology gadget is in your personal life. Thanks, Henning. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Aoife Doyle. I'm Director of Product Marketing at Finergo. Finergo is an Irish headquartered fintech that provides lifecycle management services to the financial services industry. And under the heading of lifecycle management, that would be all of the activities of managing the relationship with an investor in this scenario, from onboarding through to offboarding with a KYC and an AML backbone that would sit behind it to drive the rules within it. Um, in thinking on what my favourite technology was, I would have said my iPhone, but I, that felt a bit obvious. So I said maybe my Kindle. I read a lot and uh, the burden of storing all those books, I feel a Kindle is the way to go. Thank you, Len. Hi, I'm Len Sutton. Um, I am product lead uh, for transfer agency at JP Morgan, where I've worked for the past 18 years. I don't think I need to say a whole lot about JP Morgan because most of you probably heard of them. Um, my favourite gadget is my iPhone. So I am boring, um, but I do have an electronic tag in my car as well for getting through tolls. And I really like that as well. So that's a, that's another favourite of mine. Very practical. Very practical. I'm Ronan Brennan. Uh, until recently, I was the Chief Product Officer at Compliance Solution Strategies, or CSS. It's a lot easier to say. Um, we were recently acquired by Confluence Technologies, um, and we are a global provider of performance risk, analytic and regulatory and reporting solutions to the global investment industry. 
My favorite gadget is my new GoPro 10, which I think is just amazing. Like everyone else, I am surgically attached to my phone, so I, I thought that would be rude to say. Um, I like my Kindle too, and I am the owner of at least 20 pairs of wireless earphones. I have a huge weakness for wireless earphones, <laughs> and they see me coming in the shop. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Carolina Goshrenzi. Um, the Mac doesn't like me. I'm uh, the investment fund services sales manager for Clearstream. Um, Clearstream is a global international central securities depository. In the fund space, uh, we provide custody, execution, post-trade, as well as distribution support. Um, and we currently represent around $4 trillion of clients' assets in funds. technology uh, gadget? Gadgets, yeah. Um, Google Hub. Um, Alexa with a screen, basically. Um, I got so used to it, solving all my problems at home, that even when I go out and I want to know what time it is, kind of google what time is it instead of looking at my my watch <laughs> which might seem strange for for people who see me from from the side oh yeah Caroline, so um so we've got quite a bit to get through um the first point on the investor journey is the sale so there are two parts to any sale there's the selling the dream or the strategy uh, but then there's the execution of that sale as well which in in the concept of uh, in the context of uh, asset uh, fund administration means or KYC, and it means account opening. And uh, for those of you who've been involved in that process, and I had been involved for 11 years on the TA side before joining Callistone, uh, this is where you, you can get a lot of frustrations. You can get escalations to very senior people. It happens all the time. Um, Len, from your perspective, as one of the world's largest asset services, um, why is it that the client onboarding process caused so many problems uh, and frustrations and what's stopping us from i guess being off, uh, being able to offer the same concept of immediacy and convenience that we get in our personal lives with google for example okay thanks henning i think um the biggest challenge with uh, kyc and most of you are probably familiar uh, with this is 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 the manual nature of um the interaction with the investors to collect um, the documentation and the data i mean you know here in ireland most of the funds that are, that are marketed from here, distributed globally. So you're dealing in a multilingual um, environment and you're dealing with lots of different types of documentation um, that may be collected depending on the investor type uh, from different countries um, that, that are applicable, I suppose, in different countries around the world. So there's a lot of toing and froing, um, And it can be a cause of a lot of frustration, both for investors and indeed for clients, because, you know, obviously... Sales teams on the client side are working hard to get institutional business mandated um, and they want to uh, to get those assets into the fund as fast as they can. So, you know, uh, sometimes it can be it can be frustrating depending on um, the investor type and the sort of the complexity of the onboarding to sort of get the, the, the KYC process concluded. Um, I think some of the other sort of elements of the, the process, which maybe are a little bit more onerous than they potentially need to be, um, we're going to talk about. Um, you know, technologies that are available in, in, in the market in a second. Um, but, you know, risk assessments have to be done. Um, they're done in offline tools. Um, I think across mo most of the TAs, you've got investors having to provide documentation repeatedly. Mm. So, you know, they're coming into asset servicers. They've already invested in fund A. They provided a lot of data and documents to go through that process. Now they want to invest with a different clienting service by that asset servicer and they're having to sort of, you know, um, provide the documentation again. I mean, obviously, if it's publicly available, that's different. It can be reused. Um, but at the end of the day, the the data sort of technically belongs to 
client A. Um, so you're having to go through the, the sort of process of getting the consent of the investor and formalizing that before you can you can reuse information that they're um, they're providing to you. And then of course you've got you know access to offline um, third-party data sources. So you've a lot of primary registers online now. You know where you can you can get access uh, to information, but you're flipping from one primary register to the, to the next um, to, to collect that data. So that's, so that's manual uh, to an extent. Um, you've got the cyclical sort of, you know, process you've got to go through for high, medium and low risk investors, depending on the risk-based approach of the, uh, of the client. Um, you know, every, every three years or two years or, or every year, obviously for the high risk, um, for the high risk uh, investor, you're having to sort of refresh the information and sort of go back to the investor and, and uh, make sure that all of the, the the documentation data that you have is up to date. And then you've the complexity of the legal entity structures themselves. I mean, sometimes, you know, you could spend you could spend a few months um, sort of concluding KYC on on very complex structures, you know, where you've got a lot of circular ownership within sort of legal entity um, structures and you're trying to work out whether there's any sort of UBOs in there sort of uh, breaching thresholds and stuff. So it can be quite an engaged and sort of involved and sort of protracted um, process. In terms of what's stopping us from offering, you know, we'd say more immediacy, sort of greater investor experience. The honest answer is there isn't really anything stopping us because I think the technology is out there. I think the know-how is out there. Um, but I think it's important to make sure the right level of sort of design thinking around the user experiences, you know, because you've got a lot of different user types engaged in the process from an investor perspective. I mean, if it's Mrs. Smith, that's fairly straightforward. But, you know, you have lots of different um, legal entity structures on the corporate side. So, you know, you're dealing with um, individuals in their work environment who are gathering data and documents and having to, to sort of interact with you. So, you know, you have to think about how you can make their lives easier. Um, so there's a lot of activity, I think, in the market in this space right now. And I know we're very, very active um, in this space. We've got a major uh, program of work going on to completely re-engineer and rethink the way that we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing uh, that sort of KYC process. Thank you. And um, as our fintech expert, Aoife, to, to what extent, um, I mean, what kind of uh, advice or guidance could you give to this audience around things that, that could be done today to help with that process? Uh, and also, um, is there a holy grail out there? Is there an electronic ID or something like that, which would uh, which would fix all the problems? Well, I think if we were to set out on a journey to fix all of those problems that Len listed, uh, you're certainly looking at a very large scale transformation program. And that transformation program could run for two, three years to get to the end state that you have in mind. So I think key to it is taking an agile approach where you're looking at small incremental change, you're getting value early and accelerating the changes that you want to have and what are your P1s versus P2s versus the nice to haves at the end. There's also a piece that says that the investor experience is inadvertently improved by a better internal process. So if you're able to do changes internally that fix maybe some of the operational problems you're having day to day, you will get a, a better investor experience from that. I think some of the practical pieces that can be done is to look to how you can remove silos within an organization, particularly within global organizations with large teams. Can you look to have 
something as simple as a rules-based workflow that sends the investor through a very defined journey of data collection. What data do I need to collect? Document collection. Tell me exactly the documents that I need to have. Those areas will get a kind of a happier workforce um, and a workforce that's turning around the investor on board a lot quicker. Other areas that can be improved very quickly are areas um, of the process that you can apply some automation to. So if Len mentioned that people are calculating risks offline, you're inputting the data to calculate the risk in a spreadsheet, maybe in a, a separate tool, and then you're rekeying that risk outcome that you'd get into your system of record. Explore, can that risk be calculated within the application that you're using without anyone actually keying it in and saying, I want to calculate risk have it kind of hum away in the background and do some calculation on it. So there's a lot of pieces that can be done to improve both efficiency and I think the investor experience that would go hand in hand. But I think it's recognising what are the key pain points that you are experiencing. Len would have mentioned quite a few of those and I think they were nearly written in priority. But recognising those and seeing What's the bigger picture that we want to get to at the end versus how can we get small wins on the board that will improve pieces on an incremental basis? I certainly think the utopia that we would look to at the end and what is the piece that the industry would get to at a point in time will be either a regulator or a government-backed data repository or a data lake or a utility by which you're exchanging information. I think in order to get that, one, you obviously need a government that will row in with it, but two, you also need the participants within the, the industry to be able to sit down and say, how are we going to structure this? How are we going to share the data in the correct way? But we heard it in one of the earlier discussions on regulation that there is certainly an appetite within it from a regulatory point of view. And I think that it will be a sooner rather than later piece. I think in a, a 10, 15 year period, we will all certainly be looking at um, government backed IDs, both for individuals such as ourselves, but also for corporate records. And then, and then we'll need other governments to also accept uh, that, that that there's equivalence and so on and so forth. But that's that's a tomorrow problem. <laughs> we got the COVID search to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> only took about a week. <laughs> okay, so the account's open. Uh, the investor's ready to trade, but they want to trade in the way that they want to trade. And then the transfer agency or the fund manager wants to receive their trade in the way that they want to receive. And it doesn't always work, uh, which means that there are manual processes. Uh, there are errors, there's reconciliation breaks, and so on and so forth. You know, the industry says that we are more than 95% automated for that side of things, but 95% still means that 5% is manual, which means that there are still millions of transactions out there which are being processed manually, including the errors, the costs, the reputational risks, and so on and so forth. Um, Carolina, uh, from your perspective, you know, how badly is this impacting the investor experience and how are technologies such as uh, robotic process automation or AI or potentially even blockchain, how, how much could that help? Yeah, well, unlike in States or in Germany, France, I think the international funds market, European funds market is very fragmented, as you said. So many different actors running on legacy sy systems mm -hmm. very often with absolutely no integration between different systems. So that creates a lot of challenges um, and assets you know, we've got a very large client base. We process millions of transactions. To make it work, we had to invest uh, substantially in technology we use in our back office processes. Um, I think, you know, today, um, a lot of artificial intelligence and robotics is being 
deployed in the back office. So you no longer have people kind of going through reconciliation statements or, you know, keying um, information from the post, from the letters you get. It's really the machines reading the text and putting it um, in a way that the system understands and interprets it. Um, but I think going forward, we need to look at um, more complex and complete solutions to the challenge of the fragmented funds market. And I think funds DLT is one of the solutions that should be considered. Um, as a company, we did invest in a solution. Uh, we tested it, we trialed it. We had first funds being processed fully on, on blockchain. So there was an investor in Switzerland basically using a mobile app, sending um, a trade into the system. Via blockchain, it went into our back office, got processed, went onto the market, to the fund. Everything was done within two minutes. So from onboarding a client to completing their first transactions, two minutes, that's all that was needed. And I think, you know, if we look at the the timings of today's processing, where, where funds settle three, four days after uh, the trade has agreed, obviously there's a lot of scope to change that and to improve client experience. And I think coming back to my Google Hub uh, excitement, I think my generation and younger generations, so the whole discussion about intergenerational wealth, um, are very used to getting things now, here and now, in a very easy manner. If I use a mobile app because I want to invest into a fund, I expect that I can send my money to their bank account and see it on the app within seconds and then invest in one of the available funds. I think as it works today, um, I actually tested one of the robo um, platforms. It took three days just for my money to reach the account and then for the transaction to process, it was 10 days. So I think that's not something that will be acceptable by the next generations of investors. Um, so I think both in the back end um, of the process, but also on the front end, there's a lot we still have to do um, to be there with the technology. And as said, the technology is there. Um, now we just need to convince the market to use it. Yeah, and they're competing with kids going on to Revolution buying a Bitcoin. Exactly, yeah. exactly, all that. And, but also, you know, yeah. actively managed funds will have problems selling because there are ETFs that you can buy mm. much easier. You can yeah. access faster, they are cheaper. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, unless you make it easy, you don't ask me to, you know, fill in KYC documents and send it before mm. I open an account and all that. Um, yeah, there might be a challenge to actively managed fund managers. Yeah. And so from your perspective then, Lynn, <clears throat> um, pre-pandemic uh, blockchain was described as a technology solution looking for a problem. Uh, but we've seen, uh, we've certainly seen, and I think everyone in the room has seen that the pandemic has been a, an accelerator for digital change. Um, what, what's your view now, Len? Is, is, is blockchain science fiction? Is it smoke and mirrors? Or are there practical applications? Well, I think funds DLT have all, have pretty much proven to us that it's not science fiction. Um, so I think, you know, you are going to see um, a lot more focus on, on DLT in the future. I think the challenge I guess, in the industry, both here and in Luxembourg, um, is the fact that many of the big asset services are still on legacy tech stack, um, which is fully, I mean, fully integrated into, you know, um, various platforms in the market, including including Clearstream. Um, and I think there's an evolution that needs to happen. 
um, where, you know, you're migrating off those legacy stacks um, and at the same time looking at how much of your your business you can put into um, DLT um, and other types of technologies. So I think in the future, you know, product managers will be looking much more closely at the business case as, as opposed to just the technologies themselves. I think, you know, if you, if you, if, if you sort of roll the clock back three to five years ago, we were all sort of, you know, we all knew that this blockchain, you know, was, was an interesting area to look at and people were trying to work, work out, well, how does it work and, and where could we use it? And, um, and I think that sort of, you know, I mean, the, the technology itself has, has evolved in, in, in the last five years. So there's been lots of proof of concepts that have happened sort of around the industry. Um, so we know that there are, you know, there are applications for it. Um, but I think it's a case of, you know, of evolution. I think over the next 10 years or so, you're going to see DLT, you know, play uh, a key role. I don't think it's going to, it's going to solve every problem, yeah. mm. um, but it's certainly, you know, an area that's, uh, it's going to get a lot more focus. I mean, I know in JP Morgan, we've got, you know, we've got a blockchain center of excellence. We've got hundreds of people that are focused on, on this technology and looking across the JP Morgan franchise at how it can be leveraged in different lines of business and, um, and, and put to use. And there is a, you know, there is a strong focus on, 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 um, on, on the business case. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the pandemic has sped things up. I mean, you know that, Calistone, right? I remember you and I having a conversation, what, two years ago, about two months after lockdown, <laughs> where you were out the door with inquiries from distributors looking to uh, try and, and automate, uh, you know, o- automate the fax process. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've already seen initiatives in the market here, you know, um, sort of looking at how we could deploy a, a market-based um, KYC utility on, uh, on blockchain. And it's doable, but we've got to get everybody to the right sort of um, the right level or the right stage in their evolution to sort of to sort of push ahead with that. I think most of the, the market now, most of the major asset services, you know, are very focused on building that internal utility moving away from manual to sort of actually trying to, you know, engage users in, in an online way. Um, but I think in the future, you, you know, you will see um, a utility uh, based approach, you know, and I think we've, there's, I think there's one in Bahrain, isn't there? Isn't there it? Is, you yes. guys have worked uh, on that out there. So it, again, we've proven that it can be done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So, so the, the account is open in our process flow. The account's open. The investor is able and willing to trade. They're happy buying funds. However, uh, fund manufacturers have a legal responsibility and an ongoing responsibility to make sure that the right products are being sold uh, to the right users or to the right uh, investors. Um, from your perspective, Ronan, what does that mean? You know, how hard is it to to make sure that you're that you're you're following suitability and uh, guidelines and and so on? And how can technology help? Yeah, so it all I guess it started with the know your distributor and. Okay. I think that was kind of 2010 when I started to notice the FCA getting the hot on that. And um, it, then it started to become ubiquitous in the industry. And, and there was a huge focus on the investment manager or the product manufacturer understanding the distribu- distribution network. But it was all being collected with, I remember it was, sur- well, some, most firms were using something like SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics. Um, it emerged then some were using attestation or, you know, compliance attestation software to do it. 
Um, but then very quickly MIFID came along and it drove a whole different regime. Like it was far deeper and it was kind of, du- it was full duplex. So it required not just the, the, the investment manager and the manufacturer of the investment product um, to understand the target market better, but it actually codified it as part of MIFID. So the distributor themselves were forced to paper each individual investment product manager into the into the process. Like they were so every single distribution agreement got repapered in, in Jan Jan 18. And it drove the and it was all driven through product governance. And it drove a process whereby the distribution network needed to understand their target market in in finite detail across a number of dimensions, needed to understand negative and, and positive markets. And in terms of any products that they were selling in the chain, they had to ensure that each of those products was codified along those lines. So the industry was forced through necessity to come together to work out how are we going to exchange information here? Because at one level, the, the product provider needs to map each product into a certain set of things. And then the distributor needs to ensure it's sold the correct way. And the regulation drove them also to drive the information back up the chain so that the manager could then certify later on that the products were being sold in the correct way. So this drove the emergence of new templates to, to which were already, there was the concept of templates uh, on the back of Solvency 2 that were driven into our industry, you know, to solve for regulations that we were not subject to ourselves. So if it being in this case for, for a use at Manco or for an AFM would not have been something typically you'd need to do. Um, so the EMT, Emerge European Method Template, I can't remember, has about 100 fields. And it, would, it became the way that firms interchange this information. But firms also did not want to go out and buy this in the marketplace. No one wanted to, to buy this from a market data vendor. It needed to be available uh, at the fingertips. So it, a new kind of concept of merge, regulatory data exchanges, um, a number of them then started exchanging information between each other for, to facilitate kind of cross-industry flows. And that's how this works today. And it works really, really efficiently. We're exchanging 150,000 or so uh, EMTs every single month. So it is a really efficient process for exchanging vast amounts of data. I will say that the EFT flowback is considerably less I don't know, is that because the distribution network don't care or that the managers aren't asking for it, but there's some breakdown in that part. But the big thing is happening tomorrow. So June 1st is tomorrow, and it is the day where we are expecting uh, many, many firms start exchanging European ESG templates, which is the new driver. So again, MIFID's been updated in the interim to ensure that the sustainability preference of captured as part of KYC mm-hmm. now is driven into this process and products now need to ensure that they are now classified according to sustainability preferences in addition to the original uh, investment preferences of the investor. And this template is six times more complex than EMT just for anyone's edification. And that, as I said, kicks off tomorrow. The, the MIFID 2 rules come into play in August 2nd. So this is kind of the run-in to try and get firms ready to do that. So yeah, there's this is how, this is an example of where Reg techs and fun techs and fintechs, whatever you want to call them, all come together to resolve this and and interop and share information in in a very fast, expedient way. Great, thank you. And um, so just as a reminder, we do have a technological means of uh, being able to ask questions through Slido. But if you do, if anyone does have any questions, you're welcome to put your hand up, um, mm-hmm. uh, and we we can we can do it that way. Um, but we'll we'll carry on going. But do feel free as we get closer towards the end to pause this and ask questions. Of course, we will be around later on as well if you want to carry on. Um, okay, so we are collecting AMR KYC data. We've got a whole bunch of data on 
pro uh, transactions and processes. We've got a whole bunch of data on uh, KYD, on regulatory reporting, and so on and so, uh, so on and so forth. Which means we've got vast amounts of data. Ifa, how should we go about structuring and centralizing that data? Um, and especially in you know in your uh, expertise of uh, AMR KYC, sometimes that would include personal information. How do we go about coping with that? So I think whatever technology you're using or whatever product, be it a vendor product or an in-house build, you will have to have a data management plan. That's not something I need to tell anyone in the room, but it is actually, it's such a cornerstone of any transformation or any implementation that you're doing is how are we going to date manage the data that's coming into the system and how are we going to manage the data that's coming out of it. In the area of KYC in particular, when you're unwrapping the uh, high corporate hierarchy, you're looking to all the directors, the UBOs, you are gathering a huge amount of personal information for that particular record. One area that Len would speak of is, yes, that data should be reused, but that data will also need to be protected and uh, comply with the applicable regulations per each jurisdiction. I think there's no easy way to do this. There isn't a silver bullet that says here is a fintech that will solve all of your data needs. There is plenty of fintechs that will help you sit down to say each and every line item of data that you're get getting have the policy that says where is this being mastered as a first point. Some firms will obviously take a data lake approach where they're centralizing all of their data in a data lake. If not, be very, very clear on where that particular data point is being mastered and how it is being shared across your ecosystem through integrations, through APIs, exchanges. And then the other piece is to look at, again, every single piece of data that you're storing, look at the actors within the organization that are interacting with the data. So the salesperson doesn't really need to see the driver's license of the director of the company. It makes really no difference to them, the fact that that's on file. However, very clear and important from a KYC point of view. So in every implementation of any piece of tech, you do have to sit down and look at it actor by actor, persona by persona, whatever name you put on it. What is the person who is using the data? Do they actually need to see it? Have they got a legitimate cause to see it? And then you're looking to say, does IFA in Dublin need to access this piece of data? Yes or no. Or rather the team I might sit in, does Len in Luxembourg need to access it? There may be data privacy concerns that sit between jurisdictions. So I think if, and I have seen certainly in implementations where the data piece or the management of the data rather has been left as a little of an afterthought, those implementations can run into some difficulty. But when it's baked into the implementation or the transformation that you're doing, and it is a considered piece of what is our data management policy, you can get to a point that any, you know the personal information is protected. You know that your oper operational information, your Chinese walls, any data security concerns that you have ought to be addressed. I will say, of course, that that is data within your application. Um, Len will speak, I think, to some of the areas that you will do in terms of if you're using a vendor, ensuring that they will house your data securely. A little bit different, but the context around data within your application is you just need to think about it from the beginning and then make sure that you've got the policies in place. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. And, and, and from your perspective, Ronan, you specialise in deploying technology to meet <laughs> regulatory requirements. Um, what are the challenges? How do you how do you make sure that uh, that that's all stored correctly and, and packaged correctly? Yeah. So the, the 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 key thing here is that the the bar in terms of due diligence and oversight is correctly 
right now extremely high and it's been driven there, you know, through through learning, you know, through failure drives feedback loops. Those feedback loops lead to the to the oversight rules emerging. You know, we see Luxembourg and Dublin have probably some of the most onerous oversight of, of the third party chain of service providers that, that work through in any investment industry or any part of our investment industry. And that in turn ends up at in, for a firm like us at, at someone like myself's door. And we're dealing with due, due diligence requests and, and very deep oversight requirements on a regular basis. And I think we were sharing earlier, I think this is becoming an impedance to smaller firms coming into the marketplace. It's creating a hurdle that's very difficult to achieve. Now, on the other hand, for firms like ourselves with a growth equity or a private equity backer, um, it is leading to consolidation of the marketplace because it's only vendors of scale and size that can respond to these type of levels of onerous demand. But it requires a lot of investment in security infrastructure, data management <coughs> policies, information security management. There's, there's every aspect of your infrastructure, be it process people, tech needs, mm-hmm. needs massive levels of investment just to keep current all the time. And I only see it going up. Um, it is interesting. <laughs> we see it's to see the smaller firms coming in with similar questionnaires, which is difficult because mm-hmm. the the value expectation or the the cost of how or of serving a client of that size is is going to become a problem if their minimum hurdle is is of a certain level. Um, you know, it costs money to provide that level of service back. Mm-hmm. That's a challenge. We, you know, I guess we have to a natural level will emerge. Yeah. So, so, so we're in an environment where you know fees are being compressed, where client expectations are higher than ever, where it's getting even more complex to stay relevant, to retain business, to to win new business, and that's going to accelerate even further as we have the world's largest uh, historical uh, transfer of wealth, uh, which is going to be taking place uh, in in the very near future, or has already begun, where expectations are going to be even higher. Um, I'm conscious of time. We've got four minutes left. So, in a in a nutshell version, Len, uh, <laughs> how, as you know, how do you go about figuring out how does how does a large global financial institution go about figuring out whether you, you, you're going to build the technology, you're going to buy the technology, or you're going to lease it? So, it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Um, if it's a fairly common problem, then there's likely to be lots of applications in the market that you potentially look at. Um, I guess cost is, a, you know, is a is a major factor too. You know, if you've got a vendor out there that spent a couple of hundred million dollars developing a marketing application and they're prepared to license that to you at a very small percentage of the development cost, then potentially, you know, the economics of a, of a build are less likely to uh, to stack up. Um, if you're looking for additional expertise in, you know, um, in addition to the the actual software itself, you know, um, the really good. Uh, tech vendors will have, you know, top quality product and compliance people who can converse with you, who understand your your problem, who can who can actually help you sort of fix it. Um, and so you're getting that added value from dealing with uh, with a vendor in, in 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 the context of of a of a buy scenario. I think timeline's important if you need it quickly, um, and you've already got a an MSA in place, and you don't have to take a vendor through full end-to-end due diligence process like you would have to do with major asset services like ourselves and potentially you know buying can make sense if you know if you can't find a vendor in the market and you have to build in internally um you know because it's going to take you however long to to go through a due diligence process then then that you know that might be that might be a factor i think um 
security is obviously a big one. And Aoife's sort of mentioned it there. You know, if, you're, if your data is going to be potentially hosted externally um, in the cloud um, on a vendor site, and you, you know, you're obviously going to want to make sure that the security protocols, the cybersecurity protection, that it, it's all there. Um, and that, the due diligence around that can be quite, can be quite extensive, but security is obviously, you know, is obviously a, a big, a big point. So, yeah, I mean, that's the nutshell version. I think that's succinct. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and from your perspective then, Carolina, what do you look for uh, when partnering with fintechs? I would say exact same criteria. Um, just highlight the importance of timing. Um, with things changing so rapidly, you do not want to spend too much time building something in-house that when it's ready, it's out of date, basically. And I think in the UK, the, the Textizer initiative to, to automate transfers was a very good proof that uh, sometimes it's better to outsource. Um, so I was working with companies who decided to do it in-house. And by the time they were live with the solution, there was a new version of the software available. So they needed to kind of go back and build it from scratch. Guess what? You come back to the market, you've got a new version available. So I think that's very important to understand time-wise um, what's better for you to achieve. And I think... It's also a role of big organizations to support fintechs. Fintechs are a very crucial element of the ecosystem. And, you know, if we want to um, automate the way we do things, if we want the client experience to be better, uh, we need to make sure that, you know, the good ideas are, are brought forward to the clients and to the industry. So I think from our perspective, from ClearSense <coughs> perspective, uh, we are very keen and excited um, about working with fintechs. And I think that's what we'll do more of in the coming months, years as well. Great. Thank you. So I, I hope you have found the uh, the panel interesting. We've, we've tried to cover quite a bit of ground. Um, we've, uh, we're going through the, a very rapid pace of change from a technology perspective in the industry. Um, there are uh, organizations who are being acquired there's consolidation, there's scalability, there are concerns around investor experience, and technology is really there to be your friend and to help you. So uh, hopefully you found this interesting. I want to uh, say thank you to Aoife, to Len, to Ronan, and to Carolina. Uh, and if you have any questions, please do come and approach us afterwards. We're around. So thank you so much for your attention.